When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Your brain needs support. And new Ollie Brainy Chews are a delightful way to take care of your cognitive health. Made with scientifically backed ingredients like Thai ginger, L-theanine, and caffeine. Brainy Chews support healthy brain function and help you find your focus. Stay chill or get energized. Be kind to your mind and get these nootropic chews at ollie.com. That's O-L-L-Y dot com. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. Welcome to the New Books Network. Welcome to New Books and Film, a podcast series on the New Books Network. I'm your host, Joel Cherney. My guest today is Dr. Kate Fortmuller, Assistant Professor at the University of Georgia. In the first of our two-part interview, we discuss her new book, Below the Stars, How the Labor of Working Actors and Extras Shapes Media Production, published in 2021 by University of Texas Press. In addition to presenting the history of extras and background actors, the book also reviews many of the labor-related issues of Hollywood from its earliest days. Welcome, Kate Fortmuller. Hi, Kate. How are you? I'm doing well. How are you? Pretty good. Um, I'm talking with Kate Fortmuller, uh, who is the who is an assistant professor at the University of Georgia's Grady College in the Department of Entertainment and Media Studies, and we are going to discuss her book Below the Stars: How the Labor of Working Actors and Extras Shapes Media Production. Uh, this is actually the first of a two-part interview where Kate was quite prolific in 2020 and finished one book and also wrote another, so we're going to actually talk about both of them, but it's separate. So um, I hope you'll stick around for that second part as well. But before we get too far into this particular book, Kate, I'd like to learn a little bit more about you. Obviously, you did both of your graduate uh, degrees at USC, so obviously California in that area has affected a lot of what you've done particularly with this first book where you depended a lot on information you found there. But what led you into desire to be involved in academic of media studies, entertainment, film, performing arts? Yeah, so um, actually, and and this, my graduate work has nothing to do with my undergraduate um, course of study. So I... That's why um, I didn't mention it. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I can um, see yeah, it's so, completely, I mean, Italian studies doesn't have a lot to do with below the stars, but that's okay. No, and I feel like anyone who combined Italian and government as two majors is like, I don't know, it's like, you don't want to combine those for Did sure. Did you talk about uh, Machiavelli a lot between the two? <laughs> so, yes, actually. So much Machiavelli. I, that's really, really what I read a lot of, actually, in um, in my 
undergraduate years. Um, so yeah, I'm I, honestly, I think thinking about why I was always somebody who was interested in film. Um, I didn't, I would say I actually didn't watch a ton of American film, honestly, as a high school student, or even really as a college student, there were some exceptions to that. Um, so during college, um, this is like, a, this is a really, I don't tell this story very often, but it's kind of a weird story. I think I got particularly interested in film and the influence of film um, when I was in Cuba for a month, um, my sophomore year. So we visited the film Institute there and we're sort of thinking, I, I started thinking a little bit more about how the influence of film and how governments have used film and that sort of like broader societal ramifications for what film films actually do. And so decided I wanted to take a bunch of film classes, um, jumped into that and then was, you know, continued to be really interested in that and decided I wanted to pursue a graduate degree. So, um, and then I just kind of kept going from there. So I, on some level, sort of when I think about how I ended up studying labor and studying industry, as opposed to actually studying, you know, films themselves, I think that on some level that might come back or go back to undergraduate work and sort of an interest in um, social structures as much as anything else. I know in the, uh, the acknowledgments to this book, and yes, I do read acknowledgments, which probably makes me strange all by itself. Um, you talk about your parents and their um, being union people, human women, <laughs> human, excuse me, union women. And mm -hmm. so obviously you said that affected your outlook. And I suspect, because um, so much of this book and the, the fact that the word labor is right at the, you know, is in the subtitle tells us that so much of what we talk about with in this book and and uh, is related to labor and its importance, particularly for those people who aren't the top line people who can pretty much assume they're going to make decent money as opposed to everybody else. Everybody else who's gambling. Yeah. <laughs> gambling with their success. Yeah. I, th I, um, I think having families that tell, uh, having a family that tells union organizing stories, um, throughout your entire childhood, I think definitely, um, shapes your willingness to talk about unions and to study unions. I think, um, yeah, yeah. I'll just, I'll leave it at that. That's great. So, Below the Stars, what we're talking about, and and you can make sure I'm getting it right, but I think I am. We're talking about those um, actors, in this case, who aren't the well-known folks and the people who still are required to make movies. Um, they do a lot of work, but they're not necessarily treated the same way, or not necessarily, forget the word necessary, they're not treated the same way as the stars, they're not paid the same way as the stars, they don't have the same uh, benefits and protections that stars have. And we're talking going all the way back to the beginnings of Hollywood. This is not something, I mean, extras were a part of virtually every movie. If you would think about Great Train Robbery as being considered the first narrative film, there's all kinds of people in that film who could easily be considered extras or background performers. So what made you decide that this was a group of people that needed, that deserved some 
a special treatment in written form? Yeah, so I I think, um, and I talked about this a little bit in the beginning that one of, well, I, it's not exactly framed this way, but one of the things that got me personally thinking about um, extra work and its sort of status um, within Hollywood is, you know, I talked a little bit about, I have family that talks a lot about unions, but one of, for my grandfather, there's a lot of stories about growing up in Hollywood in the 1930s and his work, he, you know, was selling newspapers outside of Mousseau and Frank's, got discovered, I put that in, in scare quotes, um, discovered by a producer and then um, was in a few films. Oh, unfortunately, we do not, you know, this is like, ask all the questions of your, of your grandparents before they pass away. But um, unfortunately, nobody in my family knows what films they were in. People think they were gangster films, but we're really not, we're not certain on that. So uh, trying, I've, I have like fantasized basically about trying to find what he may have been in. But I think um, the ways that I would have to do that would be a little bit or a little daunting, shall we say. Um, so um, I kind of- I assume grew, I, you don't I, even know what studio he was working with or which studios. All I've heard is basically somebody in my, like a cousin thinks that he was in gangster films, which then leads me to Warner Brothers, but- and Warner Brothers definitely has a lot of that. That archive does have a lot of pay stubs um, for act for actors, but I don't, it's you know it's, it would mean me. I would basically like assuming that that's even correct. I would be just sifting through if they even have pay stubs from that particular set of like two years, um, sifting through pay stubs, <laughs> which which I could do. Um, but I don't. I actually at this point I, at this point I don't think I could do that because I'm not even sure that. Warner Brothers archive is open or anything is really open right now. But, um, but I, so I had this notion or this sort of understanding of Hollywood work as being kind of more piecemeal. Um, I think going into grad school before you start and like prior to kind of learning about Hollywood as like a, as a studio system um, in this era. So I think um, thinking about kind of what I know is like new as a history or a, as a family history, personal history, um, versus kind of the, uh, how you sort of hear and learn about Hollywood histories, that kind of difference and that gap was something I was particularly interested in. Um, and I think the other thing that sort of pushed me towards thinking about actors is, um, I was starting my PhD in a year that the actors were potentially going to go on strike. So I was paying a lot of attention to kind of the conversation around what it would mean for actors to go on strike in 2008. Um, you know, would it be more likely to happen because of the background actors less likely to happen? What do you do when you have this kind of body of a union that's background to, you know, stars, what are their interests? How do you understand their interests? So I think um, there were a couple of things kind of percolating when I was thinking about starting this project off. And you also said that some of this, and it's not the same, you know, this was an offshoot, but you said some of mm -hmm. this also was part of your dissertation um, work, which is not unusual. But yeah. you went a different direction. You went differently. How did this differ from what you had actually done for your dissertation? Yeah, a lot, a lot. Okay. I, 
there's a fair amount of chapter one was in the dissertation. Um, nothing else was in the dissertation. All of the rest of it was new. Um, a huge part of the shift in terms of what I was able to do had to do with access and getting into the SAG after archive. Um, so some of the things that I was looking at in my dissertation was um, some of it got spun off into articles um, at various points. I had like one chapter in particular about location shooting um, in my dissertation that became two different articles because it was two different basically productions, the productions on two different films that were shot in location. And you can write a really long dissertation chapter, but you can't, <laughs> articles have word count limits. So that needed to become two different things. Um, so I think in my dissertation, my workarounds for kind of thinking about labor conditions and talking about extras when I didn't have um, access to certain things was to look at particular productions and try to kind of dig in to who was working on those films and those experiences that come out of like individual productions. And um, when I was able to get into the SAG after archive, um, which was a few, you know, a few years later, um, that also really dovetailed nicely with apparently um, the archivist there, Valerie Yaros, um, had just had recently acquired um, the Screen Extras Guild um, meeting minutes and and sort of transcriptions from those, which she didn't have. Um, actually, which I like later learned she didn't even have when I was working on my dissertation. So I think even if I had had access to some of that stuff, I would not have been able to see the stuff from the Screen Extras Guild because that kind of, um, she discovered that a bit later, so. Things, you know, sort when you're doing archival work, sometimes things kind of emerge that, you know, emerge into existence or are somebody volunteers them up or somebody dies or somebody finds them in a garage um, or an attic, as was the case with those binders. I know it's one of those things you have to tell students. I know I, I teach a gen ed history course, which is, you know, for some students, it's almost their only history course they take in their college uh, work. And one of the things you always have to tell them is that you can go in with any kind of question or theory or thesis, but you have to be prepared to be to change it as quickly as as possible when you find something that either amplifies or completely contradicts what you're looking for. Yeah, totally. Or you know, if you can't, you know, like I could have I could have said like when I started, you know, what would make this dissertation work really well is if I had all the meeting minutes from this union. But if no, if if no, if it does, if they don't exist anywhere, or if you can't find them anywhere, or if, like I said, they're hiding in somebody's attic, um, all my wishing that into existence in the world um, isn't going to do much for me. So you have to. If you're still interested in the question, you have to figure out a different way to answer it. Um, so, so as yeah. we go through the book, I sort of would like to um, make sure that we talk a lot about the sources you used because reading through the book, I mean, you do it in the introduction quite a bit, but you know, it helps to get a better sense, especially for many of the listeners of this podcast tend to be academics. Not everybody, obviously, we get plenty of people who are not academics, but. I also think it's great for people who aren't academics to get a better sense of how academics do their research because I don't think the average person always considers things like archives and what's actually contained in them and what can be used. So 
basically we're talking about actors who <clears throat> over time and like I say going all the way back to the beginnings of narrative film um, were used either for background or for foreground scenes but they're people who usually don't have lines um, often don't even have anything specific to do they just are there uh, they tend to be called extras over years, but they also, uh, I think you said in the book, and I think I've heard this, is that background actors have become, as in many ways, what they prefer to call themselves. And then you also discuss people who are working actors, but above, slightly above the level of extras, people who actually um, have speaking parts, probably work reasonably regularly, but don't make that much money when they do and they still have the same issues of when am I going to work again and you use the the, the term we often use here about as character actor which is an interesting term but uh, it's sort of been fluctuating specific particularly in more recent years so um, what do we when we talk about these folks um, what is similar what what similar aspects do they have to what we would call the stars or other actors who are more successful at this point in their careers similar aspects um it's a good question um i think the similarities i would say especially for, well okay so i should bracket basically to say that there are some background actors who are doing this because they are actors and it's a way to make money and there are some people who just do this to supplement income because you can do, you know, or, or, you know, it's a job that pays and, you know, it's a gig job and you can kind of fit it in between things. I think um, I also have a lot of students actually in Georgia who do background work, I think, as a way to see what set life is to kind of get a feel for what it would be like to be on set before they, um, as they're thinking about what other film careers they might do. So there's, I think a lot of, I'll just say there's a lot of reasons that somebody might be doing background work that are not necessarily about interest in the craft of acting. But I think that if you were going to lump everyone from sort of background to star um, into, in and say what, what they all have in common, I would say it's a, um, particular kind of creative disposition and interest in um, crafting characters, that kind of like, they have a real creative drive. Um, so it's really the kind of creativity of the work. It's just a question of how much are you able to do as an actor within any given film, right? Some people get more opportunities to um, hone their craft on screen and some have less, but that particular kind of investment in the craft of acting um, as a expressive form is how I would link everybody together. Right. So let's talk about that character actor group because nowadays when you hear character actors, you can often name people who are always, who've been considered character actors. But back in the day, when we're talking about particularly in the studio system, some character actors appeared regularly but weren't necessarily well-known, where nowadays a character actor can actually have a pretty good career and sometimes even graduate into up to a higher level. When we when we talk about character actors, what do we mean? 
Um, I mean, and it's a tricky term because it really can encompass a very wide array of um, actors. So I think, and it's also one of these things that people, you know, as an academic, it's like, I want to try to define it without defining it through an example. Um, And I think, I think a lot of people have sort of tried to do that. I feel like there's a um, kind of documentary about them called the guy who was in that thing. Um, which I think is as good of a way to characterize who we're talking about on some level. Um, So people who might appear kind of regularly have a few consistent lines. I think I would say in, in, um, in comedies, sometimes they, sometimes they have the best lines in comedies because they don't have to carry the weight of the story. Um, So I think there's a lot of things, a lot of ways that you can describe them, but it's typically about, I think the def- like a way to define it is typically about sort of the influence on the narrative that there are people who add humor, color, texture, um, but don't necessarily move plot in the same way. Yeah, and that you actually gave an example in the book, and I'm not gonna. We don't have to talk about it, but I I, I mentioned the name only because I think I don't completely agree with him in the way that he described himself of Vincent D'Onofrio, because I think Uh most people these days, they know who he is. It's I agree. Maybe he doesn't get the roles, but that may have a lot to do with aspects of him. But still, he is reasonably well known. And and so. And he's often remembered for specific roles. I still, one of the ones I remember him most about was in um, Homicide Life on the Street, where he, he was the person who got stuck below the train. Uh, and uh, he died at the end, and yet you still remember that particular character. And um, so there's an example of where he's, I think he's, Still particularly well known, even though I agree to a large extent, and he's taken lead roles too. So that's the other thing that I think sort of takes him away from being a character actor. Yeah, totally. I think he. I mean, Detective Gorin is a is an important an important television character. Um, there's, you know, I I I really I enjoy Law, Law and Order CI quite a bit. Um, but I think so. I think one of the things that I would sort of say about him in particular is, and that I think is kind of that he is kind of interested or why he's kind of interesting I think is that he has he will take a wide array of roles and maybe that career has sort of fluctuated um, a bit it's not necessarily kind of like a great march towards superstardom with him like there are there are plateaus um there are you know there are some smaller roles I think he's interested he's someone I think who's definitely having seen him interviewed, he's interested in, he's very interested in acting as from a craft perspective. And I think he's interested in projects that he finds compelling and working with people who he finds um, interesting. But yeah, his comment that basically he won't, um, he can't really get anything made um, is sort of how I think he would see his kind of difference in terms of stardom and what it takes to get something made, especially film, um, you know, in 2021 is, um, particular, but I think the important level of global stardom. Yeah. But I think the thing they both, what we would call a character actor and then extras and, or background performers have in common is the importance of recognition, pay, 
working conditions, the kind of things that even though the actors above the, 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 the upper actors have to care about, it becomes much more important for these folks. And, and one of the things that happens very early on, and as we're talking about the first chapter, Hollywood Freelance, how actors and extras shape the film industry, is that issues related to labor and unions and all those things became very important pretty early on. Um, when do we see the first signs that uh, folks that are in these positions are actually getting jobs and but also begin to start thinking about, okay, what do we need to do to make sure that uh, we are used the best way we can and that we can actually benefit from our craft? So I think with extras, I think this is a complicated question to answer um, because it assumes maybe a more coherent labor identity um, than they have. Um, and so I talk a bit about attempts to create solidarity um, across extras in the in the tens, um, but it's not terribly successful. Um, so there's a really clear sense of the ways that extras are being wronged, I think, in the tens, right? There's a lot of stuff that I talk about there within kind of the way extras get paid or the way they have to take these vouchers to this payroll company that takes a cut. Um, set conditions can be pretty unsafe. Um, directors can ask people to do things that are really unsafe for extra money. It's not that much extra money. Um, so there's a really clear sense of there being a lot of problems, but maybe not necessarily a clear sense of solidarity to organize against those problems. And there's, uh, so I think the problems are identified very early on. It's just a matter of, um, that it's pretty challenging to figure out how to do something about those problems, even with union organizers, you know, trying to bring them together. Um, I think that answers your question. Does that? One of the things you include even before the introduction is a list of abbreviations, and they're all different organizations that, yeah. including unions and other groups. And looking through the list, we've got one that's actually still in existence, Actors, Actors Equity, that was formed in 1913. Um, so that's that, and then that it clearly is what we would consider to be the, I would think, the longest run, you know, the longest still in existence organization meant to assist actors. Yeah, and and focus and but but theater, right? right. And I think that relationship between theater, theater actors and Hollywood actors and theater unions versus. Um, I guess not even, you know, the nation kind of like unions in Hollywood was not, um, it was pretty fraught, I guess, <laughs> shall we say. Um, I, a lot of people who work, there's a lot of kind of cultural distinctions that theater actors kind of don't respect film as a craft. And then film doesn't think that theater has any kind of understanding of the real issues and labor conditions. So yeah, you have you have equity organizing at nineteen thirteen, but there's also it's not that doesn't necessarily do a whole lot exactly for people who are trying to work in this 
upstart film industry in California. Um, Should we consider, therefore, the Screen Actors Guild as being the most important organization for actors? Obviously, it's no longer, it's out, it actually has um, merged with the American Federation of Television and Radio Artists, but they've been around in some form or another since around 1933. So mm-hmm. is this the organization that came out of the whole process to be to end up becoming the, the most important group for actors? Yeah, I think I think right now, especially screen actors have a lot of problems with their union. But um, yeah, I'm going to say yes. Still. Um, yeah, I later think, on, I sort of wanted to get a yeah. sense as to what's going on right now, because anybody that follows <laughs> acting and, and, and entertainment has to know that there are current negotiations going on. And there's a good chance there, there have been threatened chances that there's likely to be strikes and things, but so far nothing. But anyway, we'll talk about that at, at the end because I think it's worth bringing all this up to the to the um, um, to front. So yeah. when do we first start seeing in general, and we don't even have to talk about, you know, uh, uh, extras specifically in this, is when do we see labor uh, beginning to form these organizations that, are meant to help them with their careers? Well, so the first um, studio basic agreement is 26, um, but the 30s, in the 30s, that's when we get the, the organizing of writers and actors and directors. So um, this, you know, and I talk a little bit about some of the reasons for that. I think some of the, um, some of this is in reaction, is a reaction, talent reacting to, studio leadership trying to cut pay. Some of this has to do with um, changes to the climate for union organizing nationally. Um, So there's a few kind of cultural reasons for that. I do think, and this is something um, that I'm working on as part of a a different project or kind of an ongoing project, Um, but thinking a little bit, I'm trying to think a little bit more about some of the connections between these Hollywood unions and other unions and other labor organizing that's happening um, at this time. I think um, I would say that's not something I do particularly well <laughs> in this book, in part because I'm trying to kind of talk about labor and labor identity and not provide a union history so much. So um, hopefully I'll get into that with another project. Um, but yeah, so this is all kind of percolating in the, in the early thirties is when you start getting these, um, these collective bargaining agreements between, um, studios and SAG and also the WGA and then the DGA as well. And I'm assuming I am right that union organizing is going on in other industries as well. It's not just Hollywood, but Hollywood mirrors a lot of what we're seeing in other places. Yes. So what kind of information were you able to use with this first chapter? What kind of uh, archives or primary sources helped you particularly draw this? Because as I mentioned earlier, I really found so much of that discussion to be, I didn't even know a lot of the stuff was out there. And as you pointed out very early on, there's very little what we could consider to be actors who have their, you know, especially background performers who have their own archives. So uh, unlike 
a biography of a famous director or actor or producer, this had had to have been a little bit more difficult to find the sources. So what kind of material, what are some of the sources that you found particularly helpful with this initial part of starting up the industry? Yeah. So honestly, this, um, in thinking sort of back to when I was doing this research for my dissertation, I was really interested in central casting. Um, And so a lot of So I would say like the things that I was really searching for a lot when I was like really, really, really early on in terms of um, some of this research was really looking into um, thinking about why central casting formed, um, what were the, what was central casting doing? What were the kinds of like, um, how were they putting out their information about what they were doing into the world? So I sort of backed into, I feel like this topic or researching this topic by looking at some of the institutions that actors relied on and that being kind of a primary one within that. And then trying to think about why that particular institution took hold or thinking about that in relation to the other unions that were kind of failing at the time to sort of track a, maybe like a little bit of a parallel, a parallel struggle for them. So, um, so that was sort of my, I would say my primary kind of way of searching. There's the Leo Rosencrantz letters, which are from 1916, which are kind of an interesting, and there's some other people who have used those in various other articles as well, but that was something I found super early on also in my research. Um, so an example of like actually having letters um, to rely on, which is really unusual. Um, so some letters, um, some organizational documents, um, but really kind of relying, I think, and as I kind of expanded forward, um, as I was kind of working to finish up things with this book and expanding the research on it, um, I would often try to kind of back into finding things about extras and their working conditions through some of the institutions that they use, not just central casting, but trying to kind of work through some of those things. And I think does, yeah, does that make sense? Yeah, no, it does. Because one of the things you kept talking about was things like, and I'm not sure about the beginnings, but as time went on, it was things like being able to find minutes from meetings yeah, and and those kinds of things, not the kind of thing that uh, the average person would think about for acting um, information, but in the same way, as you pointed out, in some cases, that's all you had. And yet, it would yeah. seem to me at least that they would be very illuminating because it would literally tell you what people were talking about. And 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 sometimes it tells you the tone that they're taking. <laughs> you know, there's there's yelling. There's a lot of um, there's a lot of yelling at some of these meetings. Some occasional, occasionally some name calling, um, uh, some hyperbolic statements, stuff like that. The tone can sometimes be pretty amusing. Um, yeah, I mean, I, well, I think that part of, if you think about a lot, there's so many great books on histories of acting styles, um, method acting in particular, um, and the craft of acting, um, itself. And I, you know, I, I'm, I'm interested in the labor. I'm kind of interested in the non-glamorous side. I mean, and I think I was going to say, speaking to what you're saying about things that are going on right now, I mean, I think a lot of what Yahtzee is um, trying to do is really make it clear to people that movies 
aren't just rich people leading glamorous lives, showing up to set and living sort of, you know, the life of Riley, um, that it's, that it really is work. Um, and so trying to emphasize that part. And I think that's always the part that I've been really interested in is the work of it. Yeah. Cause you used an example early on of a background actor who was working on game of Thrones mm-hmm. and you discussed in these days and as he, that was pointed out in that example, the, uh, technology that we see regularly used now, CGI and similar technologies, doesn't mean that actors have it easier in some ways. And in the example you gave of where he had to stand in a certain way in a certain position for a lengthy period of time so they could get proper um, coverage for, for their effects work and that it wasn't a quote-unquote enjoyable process. It wasn't like sitting on a set and stand and just eating, you know, cold cuts. Yeah. 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 I mean, yeah. Even these things that we think of as being, you know, you think, oh, standing around, you make money to stand around. You think that like maybe on its face sounds um, easy, but if you have to have some muscle control Mm -hmm. and stay there for hours, that's actually, um, that can actually be quite taxing. So, and as you pointed out what he was doing, he literally had to hold it because if he moved even a little bit, he could ruin the whole thing and they'd have to start all over again. So I think it worked out, at, even though it's a current example, I think it's even better to look at the past because it shows some of the things that the average uh, background actor had to deal with uh, as an example. Uh, so, and the other thing I found interesting, and we'll talk about it here, given that you talked about it as part of the introduction and then as we move forward, you actually went through the process of, this whole of of extra work when you were in California, obviously you did you never said anything about actually making it into any oh. film. So I'm assuming you didn't, but maybe you did. But uh, what wh- what did that do to help to uh, illuminate the thing everything for you? So yeah, there, there's a that imp- one of the things that I realized is that it's that extra work is supposed to be this really you know flexible thing that you can do to support your income. And I definitely my initial thought was like, oh, this seems like a great thing that I can do to like make some extra money as a grad student while doing research. What a great thing! Um, but it nobody's turns ever out- thought of that before. Yeah, exactly. I was like, oh, this is perfect. My research and extra, I can get paid while doing research. Um, So, but one of the problems is actually you realize when you're a grad student is your schedule isn't actually that flexible. You do actually have a lot of obligations. You have classes to teach. You have classes to attend um, for yourself. You have other work to do. Um, I always had multiple jobs in grad school. So I wasn't just like TAing and um, I worked in the writing center for a significant period of time. So I had all these other jobs. So I only ever really had these short windows. Um, I didn't have full days. Um, so, so first of all, what I learned is that, um, the idea that this is something you can kind of do in your spare time is, is absolutely a myth. Um, I, the other thing that I kind of, that I thought was really interesting was actually the process of registering, Um, which requires you to really take stock of every single one of your personal, your individual sort of features um, and kind of account for also accounting for certain things like 
skills or hobbies, I guess is one way to put it. Um, and how skilled you might be at those particular hobbies and how much you might be able to do those for a long time. So one of the things that they say, you, they, there's all these boxes that you check when you register for central casting. And some of it's like eye color, hair color, height, how old do you look? Um, so it's not you assessing that they tell you they're like, talk to the people in line, tell them, you know, don't put what race you are, you actually are, put what other people think you look like, don't put how old you actually are, put how old other people think that you look. And so it leads to these really kind of strange confrontations with your appearance that I did not, that I don't usually do on a, on a daily basis or even maybe a yearly basis. Um, and then you get down to the skills section and they basically tell you, okay, like just because you've done yoga, don't, doesn't mean that you can sit in a, you know, in a yoga pose for eight hours. So, you know, you have to think about how long you could reasonably do this, like within a day. And some of that is a little horrifying, but then there's also these other kind of weird things like fire eater, you know, like they're looking for specific types of, um, circus training, I guess, in some ways that are kind of interesting. Um, once you get registered or once you fill out the form, they take your picture and then you're kind of officially in the system. And then in order to get a job, you have to call in to the line multiple times a day because they don't call you unless you're somebody who has, if you are a fire eater, they probably call you because there's probably very few of them in the system. And like, if somebody wants to use that, they're looking for a really particular talent set. Um, but um, yeah, but basically they're, you have to call in and be pretty vigilant about, um, about that system. Central casting is no longer the only sort of company that does these. So if really, if you're trying to do this, you need to register for a bunch of different, um, extra places and the people who I know who have been sort of most successful about able to get those extra jobs, um, during the year have hired, um, or have paid money to have somebody checking the calls and submitting for them. So it's not even really something, it, it requires enough kind of vigilance individually that it actually, if you're really gonna be effective at it, you need someone else to do that. So you're saying you. extras need assistance too. <laughs> yeah, to, yeah, yes, they do. And I, and when you think about what you're being paid, that becomes very problematic right? You're the, that it really becomes a kind of pay to play situation. And periodically there are all these things that there are all these, there are companies that frequently pop up as meant to help extras and, or help actors or whatever. And sometimes they get flagged as exploitative. Sometimes they don't. I mean, I think at the end of the day, Hollywood, um, there are a lot of businesses that exist in Hollywood to support the business of the biz. And sometimes on the, they, sometimes they look quite shady um, and they are quite shady, but sometimes they become legitimized and a necessary part of the business. And nobody thinks they're shady anymore, even, even if they once seemed, seemed to be that. So I think it's a weird I, part of, I guess, what I would say that I learned from that too is, is um, that there's, I guess, maybe more 
there are more challenges to um, identifying an exploitative business than I would have expected. It's not as black and white as you would think, I guess. So I know we've been talking a lot about the basics, so let's keep moving through the book, though, because second chapter, Actors in the Making of Television's First Golden Age, and I think we can safely say television was the first major offshoot um, from the movies where actors could still make a living, but because it was done differently and had different uh, people in charge and other issues, what changed for uh, background actors and character actors because of television? Well, background actors became a lot less necessary. So I think that was the first thing that was um, a major challenge for anyone who was doing that kind of work. Um, Right. So part of that has to do with screen size, um, a lot, a lot of like a lot of stuff that takes place on studio sets and domestic spaces. You obviously don't need extras for like a family sitcom. Um, that would be super creepy. Um, Although you do see it sometimes. I can think of uh, Seinfeld in the diner. There are extras in some yeah. of the other shows, but I agree with you, especially at the beginning. Right right at the beginning, I'm sure they were doing everything they could. And often with television shows, you won't see that early on in the series. But as the series continues to be successful and they start branching out their their locations, then you do occasionally see that more. But I agree back in this period in particular, I'm sure you didn't see a lot in the way of extras. Totally. So, yeah, contemporary sitcoms, you might have locations. You might have. Yeah, exactly. Like a diner location a location where people gather, right? How did, or how I met your mother has the bar. So there's a lot of like more contemporary ones where you have, you're in the world in some ways, but um, domestic sitcoms um, are really reliant probably on like your main couple and your, your neighbors. Um, So extras really aren't very necessary at this point. Um, So that's, they're kind of largely left out of this conversation. Um, this is also the point where extras are for, are really forming the screen extras guild. Um, so trying to protect their interests in light of the fact, I guess, on some level that, that television is this new form that's shaking them out. Um, this is also a period, um, especially post-World War II, where you're seeing a lot more, you know, beginnings of location shooting and tax incentives that are taking film production away. So extras have... A, all different sets of issues at this time in in addition to television um, that they're kind of dealing with as a as a group of Hollywood workers. Um, and as far as I mean, I think this and I it's hard because I realize I realize this um, I've, I've realized this kind of recently, especially um, when you start getting to talk about jurisdiction and sort of like which union can negotiate for you know, who was going to be doing the negotiations for, you know, television or for film, those, that can get very granular, um, very quickly, um, that kind of, and those kinds of infighting. Um, so, um, but you, what really, what, like I would say, if I was going to kind of sum up what this, what this chapter is sort of doing is thinking you basically have the Screen Actors Guild, um, and Actors Equity trying to, figure out what television is going to be. And is it going to be more like film or is it going to be more like theater? And I don't, I guess, and battles ensue, I guess, is what I would say. Infighting between different types of actors um, 
starts to heat up. What about the issues of television filling time with previously made Hollywood films? Obviously, this would probably be one of the first times that uh, we run into the issue of a movie being used in another form, which, of course, we're going to talk about in a minute or two with some of the other things you talk about. But were there fights early on about the idea that suddenly uh, a popular Hollywood film or even a less popular Hollywood film is going to be shown on television and who gets paid and who deserves to get paid and does anybody get paid? Yeah. Yeah. I, well, one of the things, I mean, I think that's really interesting to happening early on is that you have, um, I mean, I guess the other, the other group that's sort of in this mix, right. Is the, um, are the radio artists and basically SAG is getting kind of quite a bit of flack at this point for not really dealing with this issue (laughs) early on. Um, they're kind of not, thinking about it um so yeah they're getting a little bit of i i guess what i would say is um this is coming up but they're they're not necessarily dealing with it as well as they um as well as they possibly could or as proactively as they could be um and i think that's one of the things just to sort of um stepping back from it being just this being sort of about actors is it's interesting watching you know, industry players, whether they're leadership in SAG or leadership in AFRA um, at the time, trying to think about and predict the future um, and the future of screen media is, is kind of, is interesting. It's interesting what they get right and it's interesting what they get wrong. And it's interesting the way that they kind of, ha- I always found it very fun to read the ways that they're hashing out um, what this could be, what they're kind of imagining, like imagining that the television broadcast into movie theaters is going to be a huge, you know, a huge thing. And that they might need to think about that. These kinds of like technological futures that come from industry workers are, are interesting to read, especially because we see some, I mean, when you're living in it, you're not noticing how many different ideas are necessarily flying about, about the future of the industry, which I'm sure somebody looking back on this current moment will be very interested to see all the, all the ideas about streaming and what. Well, and even before streaming, there was, and this is, we'll get to this now as we go into the third chapter, reuse and replace actors reruns in the cable era and then into new media in chapter four. The first example I can think of after television, obviously, was the home video revolution, where deciding, okay, once again, we're reusing material that, and and we can first talk about reruns because that obviously came first, but where there were major fights at the time of when home video first started. Not only were the studios claiming that they, that many of them were fighting the ability to even have the technology for home video, although statistically back in the day it was pretty much given that most people never recorded when <laughs> on their video recorders. They tended to only watch pre-recorded material. They, average person didn't even know how to use uh, record functions. But anyway, this goes into this issue of reruns and not only on regular TV, but as you point out, the cable era. I still remember, I'm... 
uh, growing up in the 60s, where late 60s especially, where TV shows that had been on for a while were being rerun during the daytime, even though we only had three channels, um, they had a lot of time to fill. And depending on where you lived and how much local programming they did, it was not unusual to between the game shows and the soap operas was to see reruns of just about any show you can think of. And nowadays we've got TV channels, not only something like TV land, but now some of these other smaller TV channels that are rerunning, you know, the Beverly Hillbillies and, uh, and, uh, Andy Griffith show. And, and what was the situation? I mean, obviously this had to have been a major issue as to, okay, well, who deserves, payment for these continued showings and while nowadays i suspect it's it you know over the years these various fights have helped to to amplify this it must have been very difficult at the time because once again as you pointed out nobody really thought about it and it suddenly came to pass yeah i so i yeah and i was gonna say reruns we can just circle back to vincent d'onofrio um ci definitely something that is right that's what i mean when you've got channels showing episodes after episodes nowadays in cable but uh it got to a point if you were watching reruns you'd say oh no i've already seen this one yep and then of course the best example the most well-known example of star trek which failed as a TV show on, on network TV, but it was the reruns that kept it going. And that was even in the pre pre cable era. Yeah. I was going to say, and that's, I that's so shows are so much more successful now if they go to streaming, right. People don't necessarily catch them live, put it on Netflix. People then go back and start watching it live. So the reruns can be really important for the, you know, for the six future success of shows, as long as they don't get canceled. But yeah, so um, I'll try to back up a little bit. Um, I think one of the things, I guess the first thing I would say that's, I think, particularly interesting, and this is like this chapter in particular with the sort of split in this book is that um, when there's, there are conversations about, um, or, the, you know, there's there's obviously like conversations that are kind of ongoing and some residual payments that are um, established earlier. But really, once we hit the 60s, um, we're thinking a little bit more or actors are thinking more. The union is thinking more about the life of a show um, and the value generated by that show or that film over time. Um more than they are thinking about the kind of physical labor conditions. And I guess to sort of like, I guess, think a little bit about what's happening today with the Yahtzee strike is that that's what, what I think is sort of noteworthy about that is that it is about labor conditions on set that are terrible. And that has not been at the forefront of negotiating um, in quite a few decades. Um, so this becomes, a, yeah, with VHS, this becomes a really, big issue um, for the unions in this period of time. And I think the other thing that's, so there's like a couple things in that chapter. And it's also um, that I'm also sort of talking about the commercials strike and the, the importance of commercials as part of their livelihood. So this kind of post 60s period, um, the actual work, if when we're thinking about the actual work of actors, I think we have to think a little bit more about 
more or think less maybe about film and television and more about things like residuals and commercials, which I think are probably, again, sort of really boring maybe <laughs> for, for people who are interested. I mean, like boring as sort of topics in that, right, that um, when people, people who study film and television and are interested in media studies are often interested in the artistry or the kind of like actual final product and the final product of a lot of commercials are really boring, but um, sometimes, but some are great, I guess, but those are the things that are really keeping, keeping um, actors, you know, helping them pay their rent, helping, helping them sustain their careers, helping them get their benefits. Um, so all of those things are kind of important on that level. And of course, one of the things that maybe isn't as obvious to some folks, maybe they think about it now, but some of these older TV series that are still being run, people aren't getting it residuals anymore. They, In many cases, the residuals was for a certain number of showings, and that was it. And even though things have improved in many ways, uh, many times one of the reasons why so many of these shows are shown is because I'm guessing it's pretty inexpensive for the cable channel or the TV channel to rent them for showing. Yeah, I mean, Jonathan, oh, so I, the residuals calculations, I mean, Jonathan Handel has this kind of amazing chart. Um, he's an entertainment reporter um, and entertainment lawyer, and he created this chart to kind of help people visualize the different calculations um, for residuals based on platform of release and platform of replay. And there are just, it's so hard to create some sort of generalizable understanding of what they are because these calculations really vary by year and vary by, um, yeah, they're, they're, they're in exceedingly complicated, I think. Um, in some ways, but yeah, I think just because you're seeing, it's a good point that just because you're seeing a rerun doesn't mean that people are really still making um, significant money off of them. So then, the, right. So then yeah. the, the fourth chapter, which is the last chapter of the main book, new media, old labor contract conflicts. And this is where we start talking about, or continue the discussion of new methods of but also in particular voice actors. In fact, the rest of the chapter title is voice actors and digital professionalism. Yeah. Obvious, and you, the key thing is it's old labor conflict. So it's once again, it's another new medium. And here we go again, because either somebody didn't think that far along or said, oh, we'll deal with it then, or they didn't deal with it and it suddenly became an issue. Um, where do we start to see this becoming a more important subject that continues to add to the to the labor aspects uh which subject i'm the sorry subject? The, the voice actors this, this last chapter yeah. yeah 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 um so yeah so voice i mean voice acting well this is another thing that's gotten increasingly um if i can say increasingly important during the pandemic because so much voice acting can be done um which i talk about people do it out of their homes and have sort of their own setups so um, I think there's a couple of things that um, sort of drew me to this particular group as um, a good example for the final chapter. Um, first of all, this is one of the, this is, I believe, the longest strike um, 
in SAG after history, um, or well, certainly SAG after has not been around that long. So um, longest strike in SAG history. Um, I'll put it that way because that's a longer history. Um, I'm remembering right. Um, that so that union was sort of ongoing as I was doing some of this research, um, or and then it sort of extended into it, sort of finishing up um, or the strike finishing up. Um, a lot of the work of voice acting, I think, conforms to some of the ways that like people like Angela McRoby have theorized um, digital work um, and changes in the kind of new economy, which is basically displacing a lot of the work that has traditionally been part of like an institution onto the role of the individual. So essentially, actors are more are responsible for taping themselves, recording their own auditions, directing their takes in each of these auditions and kind of um, making making sure that that's they submit. So a lot of that work, which used to be part of, you know, your even if even people who have agents are now now have to do this all on their own because these turnarounds have become so quick for them. Um, so some of what was interesting to me is is that kind of piece of it. Um, you know, the issue of new media residuals is important for everyone, but I think that voice actors are feeling some of the pressures of the digital economy in more acute ways. Um, and I think some of their work maybe is understood a bit less um, and it's easier to kind of encroach or employ kind of additional pressures on them. So that was one of the things that I would say was particularly interesting to me in part because there was an ongoing strike and that seemed to, difficult to resolve um, in part because they were feeling these pressures pretty acutely. And then I think the other piece of this that's really interesting to me or continues to be interesting um, is this was a real clash between a tech industry with Hollywood workers. So voice actors who are part of a union, who are um, who are actors, who are used to working on Hollywood projects, for example, are really coming up against video game companies, which have notoriously some of the worst working conditions. There's a lot of, um, I talk about some of this stuff. There's like a notorious blog, EA Spouse, um, we, this term crunch, which people have heard of, of that basically when a new game is about to be launched, that these, these, um, programmers, designers are working some atrocious hours to get things in under deadlines. So, um, those kinds of collisions between people who have normalized horrible working conditions with people who haven't, <laughs> or are unwilling to normalize those conditions, um, is I think interesting and maybe indicative of some things we're going to see more frequently in the future. And unfortunately, I think sometimes, and and when we talk about the pandemic book, we'll definitely come back to this, is that uh, the whole issue of labor unions and how they protect, or worse, not having a labor union doesn't protect you in certain situations, and the whole issue of the value of labor unions and how some folks continue to believe that uh, they aren't necessary and things like that, which obviously could be talked about in other industries too. So, but I know that's, that's all part of this. Um, and then they'll, the last, 
you have a postscript in this book, which I'm gonna we're we're gonna hold off on discussing it briefly, but uh, I wanted to mention it because it is in this book, Actors in COVID-19: What the Pandemic Teaches Us About Film and Television Labor. Because as I mentioned at the beginning, this is actually going to be a two-part interview because you also wrote a book about the pandemic, and so uh, just from the very beginnings of it, Hollywood shutdown, which we'll talk about separately, but it's clear that that postscript was added in at the end of the process, given that uh, the book was published this year. So obviously it must have been mostly done at the time of the pan- pandemic. But uh, what decide, where was the decision to go ahead and add this ex- this last section? Yeah, so I got my um, reader reports um, right when everything was shutting down. So one of the comments in the reader reports said, maybe you should add a postscript about this. Um, so obviously, um, academics, it's, we're not used to writing about ongoing issues. That's more the domain of journalism. Um, so, uh, when I got that report, I would say it would, I, my immediate response was a little bit of grumbling. Uh, (laughs) I don't want to write anymore. I'm happy to like revisions are great, but oh no, I don't want to add any more to this book. Ugh. Um, and also like a little bit of, I would say I was a little bit hesitant in part because I was having trouble wrapping my head around this being um, more than just a blip on the radar. Um, you know, this is like, I think at the time, right, everything, when I started, when I, when I got the notes at least and was wrapping my head around this, obviously I wrote it a little bit later, but when I got the notes initially, I was, yeah, things were just shutting down. Everyone was shutting down for two weeks. I I think actually I'd have to sort of check the date, but I think actually I got the reviews saying, Hey, maybe talk about this a little bit, even before Hollywood had fully shut down. I think that live TV was just happening without audiences at that point. So it was really early um, when this conversation came up. So, um, so clearly yeah, the so reviewer I, knew more than you did about what was yeah, going on. Yeah, uh, the reviewer was clearly like way more concerned about this than I was slash should have been. I don't, I was clearly like unwilling to wrap my head around this being like a long-term thing, um, which is particularly, I think, funny given that I ended up writing a lot more about this. Um, But yeah, so I was, I was initially like, I thought initially that the reviewer was being overly paranoid. (laughs) He was not. So I have to go to him and ask him if he has any tips for us in the stock market. Uh, (laughs) So, so um, as as I've been saying, this this first book that we've been talking about, Below the Stars, How the Labor of Working Actors and Extras Shapes Media Production, one of the things I like so much about it is, is that once again, and these are my, have become my favorite books, are the ones that dig into the background and dig into the stuff that the average person doesn't think about, even me, in, in media studies sometimes. Biographies are great. Uh, books about the making of certain films are great, but sometimes these background information can be so interesting because it just educates you so much on what, uh, what's been going on and what is still important in the few, in, in the current time. So uh, I'm glad the book worked out uh, as well as it did, and I and and 
it's interesting that now from looking around, you're going to be continuing to uh, stay in this topic area. I noticed that you've got, uh, as you mentioned earlier, you've got a book, an edited collection uh, under contract right now called, uh, at least what it's called now is Hollywood Unions with with uh, Lucy Marzolo, who is the author of Engineering Hollywood, who I talked to last week. So uh, it's interesting that, and she, her book was in many ways the same kind of thing. It gave you underlying information that you probably didn't know and, and really helps to add to uh, the concepts of how Hollywood operated and operates even now. Yeah, yeah. I was, and I, I read that entire book and she read my entire book. So um, we, we have been good readers for each other. But yes, we will continuing on. And, and I think, yeah, continuing on and in part, I think that, well, there, there hasn't really been a book on all the unions that has sort of hit all the unions since the 60s. Um, so there's some there are some major gaps. Um, some unions have great books on them. Miranda Banks's book, um, Virginia Wright Wexman's book on the DGA, um, Miranda Banks's book on the WGA. Um, there are certainly, and um, Maya, Maya Smuckler's book on um, also on is also on the DGA. There's there's really good books that cover some of these um, larger unions, but we're really there are some huge gaps in terms of um, the studies of unions. So we're really kind of looking to at least correct some of that and hopefully open up some new other avenues for study, um, but update some some of the some of the work on unions. Well, hopefully when that book comes out, I'll have both of you on at the same time. But anyway, uh, so this is a, a great way to stop in our interviews with the first book. And we'll take a, we hope that uh, people will stick around. And when the second interview comes out about your second book that we're going to talk about now, uh, which is Hollywood Shutdown, Pro Production, Distribution, and Exhibition in the Time of COVID. So uh, hope everybody will be watching for that one. And uh, I really enjoyed talking to you about this uh, this book. And uh, I'm looking forward to continuing our conversation. Thank you for having me. I hope you will look forward to part two of my interview with Kate as we review her other book published in 2021, Hollywood Shutdown, Production, Distribution, and Exhibition in the Time of COVID. This is Joel Cherney, and I will be back soon with more New Books and Film, a podcast series on the New Books Network.